This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. It is a, a fundamental paradigm shift of consciousness in this country, uh, which is a heavy lift. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It may not even happen in our lifetime. We hope it happens. Uh, we do this work with the hope that it happens. In March 2020, the coronavirus pandemic created a devastating impact within and outside the United States. COVID-19 made us painfully aware of systemic racism in healthcare, with the allocation of scarce resources for vulnerable populations. In May 2020, the murder of George Floyd by a police officer brought the continued injustice of systemic racism into sharp focus for many Americans. The nation's focus on confronting systemic racism highlighted foundational questions of bias against people of color in public health ethics and bioethics regarding providing fair and equitable responses to the coronavirus pandemic. Specifically, one example was the SOFA score tool, a proposed unbiased method to fairly allocate scarce resources like ventilators, was shown to be less likely to allocate resources to people of color compared to white Americans. In this podcast, we learn from our experts, Neka Sederstrom, Edwin Lindo, and Gina Campelio, why our resource allocation methods fail to be fair and equitable, and how we can work towards an equitable approach to scarce resource allocation in particular, and bioethics in general. Jamie Connerman Cease, our graduate intern at Ethics Lab in 2020 and 2021, will be interviewing our guests. Jamie is completing her PhD in healthcare ethics and theology at St. Louis University. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Thanks, Kevin. Um, I was most interested in learning about how even the tools and methods we use in resource allocation, which we think are unbiased, are actually do have a bias against people of color in the United States. That was fascinating to me, as well as some of the uh, proposals that our guests have for how to find a way forward. I would like to begin with introductions of our guests. Can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, happy to. Uh, my name is Edwin Lindo. I am Assistant Dean for Social and Health Justice at the University of Washington School of Medicine and also Assistant Professor in the Department of Family Medicine with my work focusing on critical race theory and its application to health justice and health equity from medical students, trainees, and uh, attendings and staff. Uh, so glad to be here. Hi, everybody. I'm Gina Campilia, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle. I am also an ethics consultant for UW Medicine, including uh, UWMC and Harborview Medical Center. Hi, I'm Nekka Sederstrom, the Chief Health Equity Officer for Hennepin Healthcare in Minnesota. Could you all help me understand how the SOFA score was established as a triage guideline? I, I'll preface this with, I'm not a clinician. So my understanding of the SOFA score and the triage guidelines come from a position in ethics, um, my trainings in philosophy. For those who may not know, SOFA stands for the Sequential Organ Failure Assessment. 
So it's trying to get a sense of organ dysfunction and then connect that with survival in the ICU. What I know about the the SOFA score was that it was developed in the early 1990s. It quickly measures a number of things, including arterial oxygen saturation based on oxygen flow and delivery rate, level of consciousness via the Glasgow Coma Score, mean arterial arterial pressure, liver function, degree of coagulopathy, um, and kidney function. So these measurements are taken together and they produce an overall score that is then used for predicting the likelihood of death in the ICU. A higher score means the patient is more likely to die. It was not initially designed to predict outcome. It was actually used to provide an objective or quantitative description of organ dysfunction, but then further studies showed this association between the score and survival. And so that's how it started to get used as a predictor for survival. I should note that many of these studies that I'm mentioning early on were studies uh, in Europe. And so that's important to take into consideration in terms of the history of the score. I think I'll just add on to that, that um, it has it has been seen over time as a predictor in particular to um, patients who suffer from acute respiratory distress syndrome um, and their potential outcomes in critical care spaces. So when um, when looking at the effect that COVID was having on patients and acute respiratory distress syndrome was the number one thing that we were seeing as a an indicator of why they got ventilated and went into the ICU. This became a good predictor to use because of that part of the COVID story. Why do we have concerns that the SOFA score does, you know, rate patients of color lower and prioritize them lower than white patients? So the score doesn't prioritize them lower. What what happens is because of systemic, institutional, environmental, or as Dr. Abram Kendi says, just plain racism, um, those factors are the reasons why non-white, uh, non, not necessarily even just non-white, but non-white U.S. born patients have a different outcome, right? So there is a history of disparity, discrimination, and racism against Black and Brown people in America that has led to a significant amount of health-related comorbidities that are disproportionate in these populations. And the SOFA score specifically uses those as an indicator of non of, of survivability of an ICU stay. So it's not the score didn't deliberately discriminate. The score, because again, was built off of mostly white people who don't have these additional elements as a result of being white in, in America or white in Europe, uh, the score was not built to be able to take into consideration persons who have history of racism, abuse, trauma, uh, and all the other things that we know have led to discrimination in medicine. And one thing to add is the, the score we're talking about it is very similar to the concept of computer engineering when you are trying to create software, 
right? In the sense that the software is only as effective and or equitable as the input you put into it. And so if the, if the input, if the code is not considerate or not able to contemplate the realities of people who don't look like them, then you're going to end up with things like Google telling black folks who search for colleges, and the data shows this, getting colleges that are not in the top 50, but white people getting colleges that are in the top 50. Right? It's not an accident. It's, it's the way the algorithms work. And algorithms by themselves, right? If you, if you say that's an algorithm, you can't call the algorithm the, the racist antagonist. It's, it's again, the, the individuals and or the system that is inputting the information that is creating outcomes that are desperately and inequitably um, found in our society. So even though we haven't intentionally created biased algorithms, because the algorithms were created without recognizing the fact that systemic racism exists, racism ends up in our algorithms. And this has happened with the SOFA score, which is a type of algorithm. Therefore, when we create tools like algorithms, we have to create them with the reality of racism in mind in order to minimize the effects of racism. There is a continued misconception that if we just give everybody the same chance, they're all going to have the same outcome. And there is this continued belief, especially in medicine, right? Because people who go into medicine typically are other oriented mindsets. They are very caring. They're service minded. They went into a field to take care of others, to be with others. And so there's this automatic uh, uh, character ascribing to them as being just good people. So to be told that things that you are doing or perpetuating are not good for everyone feels like it's an attack on their character. And having tools that allow for, in their mind, equality uh, makes it feel better. So to say to them, when you have all these unidentified people in front of you, right? Because a big thing that everybody was worried about was if they're unblinded and we know who they are, our personal biases would be the reason why racism would be implemented. And it's like, well, so we'll just close our eyes to that. We'll have, everybody will be blinded and we'll be able to, to manage it that way because we'll just treat them equally. But the reality is that in doing so, they perpetuate the systems that Edwin was talking about that have already been in place that we have continued to be blinded to because we don't want to face the reality that our systems are still structured in ways to disenfranchise black and brown people. Let's go on to talking about the, sort of the philosophy behind the SOFA score. So I would like to hear from you all what underlying commitments are um, these triage guidelines like the SOFA score based on? So I think that the triage guidelines that use the SOFA score or, or other measurements and clinical data, uh, they're, what they're trying to do is actualize an underlying commitment to utilitarianism or more bro broadly consequentialism. And consequentialism is a dominant approach in healthcare ethics. It's among others, but I think in public health emergencies, consequentialism 
rises to the center of our conversation for a number of reasons. So uh, we always use consequentialism alongside often deontology in, in medical ethics and bioethics more broadly. These are our dominant approaches in medicine and they have a history in a Eurocentric colonized tradition of philosophy. Consequentialism is a standard of public health ethics because what happens in a public health emergency is that you suddenly have difficulty meeting the needs of all individuals. And so you have to think about the good of the whole and how it might come into conflict with the needs of individuals. The problem with that is that we have to ask who's interpreting the good of the whole, how that is being understood, and what effect it's having. I think, but then underneath all of that is how did consequentialism come to be a dominant approach in healthcare ethics? And that's wrapped up into all those other pieces. Consequentialism, for those who don't know, is an approach in ethics and in philosophy more broadly that focuses on the consequences of our actions. So as opposed to saying, what are the right rules or obligations or what's the right action? Consequentialism looks at the consequences to figure out what the right action is in a given situation or what the right policy is in a given situation. Consequentialism can get interpreted in a number of different ways. Utilitarianism is one form of consequentialism that often gets used in public health emergencies. Utilitarianism looks at the greatest good for the greatest number. And that's often what gets used in triage algorithms. And it gets further interpreted as how do we save the most lives or how do we save the most life years? which on these algorithms, as we've been talking about with SOFA, that gets further interpreted and applied as saving the healthiest, right? So how do we allocate resources to the healthiest, which are the most privileged to save the most lives and life years? How does consequentialism address racial privilege and disparity? I think the problem is that it doesn't. Uh, so consequentialism doesn't center the issues of racism um, and more broadly oppression and inequity in our society. It has a, uh, a long history in Eurocentric philosophical traditions, and it can be used in ways to think about outcomes related to racism and inequities in our society, but it doesn't center that. It doesn't center inequity. It doesn't center oppression and uh, in its analysis, right? So it talks about consequences broadly. And what happens is that who is doing the analysis of what consequences matter and who counts, that then perpetuates these systems of inequity and oppression. So consequentialism is an individualistic philosophy, meaning it counts all the individuals up and adds 
the benefits and harms and then compares them to one another. So when you're looking at the public good or the public health, you're counting up, it, it quickly counts up individual lives um, and individual life years and weighs them against each other. And it hopes to do that objectively. I put that in air quotes because the idea is that every individual life counts equally. But as we saw with SOFA, that is blind to the inequities that face individuals and more broadly communities. And so I, with consequentialism, a big problem with its failure to address racism and inequity is that it also takes this very individualistic picture of our society that is not present in a lot of value systems within our society and really fails to acknowledge uh, some of the more relational and community-oriented value systems that we have. And it's going to be, it, it would have to be twisted to account for inequities and um, account for racism in our society by injecting justice as equity-oriented approaches. I would also add, at its core, consequentialism sits squarely as the the close friend to utilitarianism in its most classical form, right? And when we contemplate that, it tells us that we we calculate, as Gina was mentioning, we calculate the good and we calculate the bad. And when we add those together, if it's a net good, then the decision was a good one. The problem with that is this country has never viewed the harm of black people, indigenous people, or people of color as ever a bad thing. And so it's never been part of the equation. Because if it were, then it would be exponentially bad. What other ethical theories besides consequentialism are commonly used in justifying TRIAS guidelines? We really primarily use consequentialist frameworks. I, I think there have been considerations for other versions of justice frameworks. So people have talked about justice as fairness, have considered things like um, uh, randomization and first come first serve types of policies, but we're still largely guided by consequentialist frameworks um, and utilitarian frameworks. And I think part of the problem is, is that when we think about looking at an ethical framework for an emergency crisis standpoint, right? The thing that is the, the, the biggest indicator of what we need to use is the ability to come up with a, a mechanism that gets at the most people in the quickest amount of time. And we can't do that in an equitable way because our current society is so inequitable. So every consequentialist base or every other theory that kind of gets at a greater you know, number of people in a quick way will always have these problems. If we pull back and try and be intentional and deliberate and maybe use more of a virtue ethics lens and it be more individualistic, it will be much slower. It'll be harder. You have personal bias that's going to take place, like all these other things that come down to the, 
the person now who's looking at the one person in front of them making judgment calls based on their independent, you know, individualistic situation. But again, our society is set up in a way that that would even be just as problematic. I I would throw in that there are individual values that people try to implore when making these decisions, such as fairness and equality. The problem is, and Gina mentioned this already, is when you apply a value set of equality to an unequal apparatus, you're not actually addressing it. You're still benefiting the people who had the benefit before they came to the hospital. Uh, Simultaneously, if we're going to talk about equity, which is another framework that I think people are now contemplating as something we should apply, then we would have to do the complete opposite of equality. We would actually have to provide differential benefits because of the disproportionate harm caused to one group. There's going to have to be a disproportionate benefit to that group. And some people think, oh, well, geez, you're going to be taking away from communities. And what I've described it as is actually the communities that we're saying some of the care should be transferred away from, they're receiving more care than they need. And that additional care is what I call the surplus of inequality or sorry, the surplus of inequity. That if we took that delta uh, from what they need to what they get, which is substantial and offered it and provided it to communities that aren't even at the starting line, then we might be getting closer to equity than we are today. But people are holding on to this mentality of scarcity that, well, you're you're taking my care away. No, you're still going to get the vaccine. You're just not going to get the special email because you were a donor to the hospital. That is the surplus of inequity. And it's happening today and we're seeing it in the news every day. And it's also causing this this sort of side effect of feeling like there was something owed that is now being taken away, that there is this right to healthcare, this right to top quality healthcare that is owed by virtue of being born white and American that's being taken away when somebody says, wait your turn. Uh, the problem that, that we have to battle against in trying to fight that massive gap of inequity is we have to make it clear to those who are truly trying to do this work who may not be Black, Brown, Indigenous, people of color, uh, that when they're faced with someone who says, why not me, that they are, have the tools to be able to respond and to respond in a way that makes it authentic and not perpetuate continued stereotypes and racist beliefs and practices, right? It's got to be authentic. Data is not just it. Data is never just it. I remember this time where there was this white parent who was having a conversation with me about equity and trying to better understand how this would work. And she was talking about how it would be really uncomfortable and really upsetting to know that her child was being cut from getting something that was available and readily accessible. And it was only happening because her child was white and that same resource, the money was being used to provide it to another child. And the only reason why that was happening was because that child was black. 
how can triage guidelines be reformulated to address concerns that they maximize privilege rather than the number of lives saved? I think what's interesting to see and where we are and the work we're doing is that over the last year, there has been some recognition of the connection between the ethical grounding and consequentialism, its application and triage policy, triage algorithms, and the perpetuation of racism and inequity that would fall out of that if we were to use these algorithms in real time. And so a lot of folks have actually done a work on figuring out what some intermediate steps are. So this is, okay, holding still some of the consequentialist values of saving as many lives as possible or saving as many life years as possible. How can we counteract the inequities that that perpetuates? And so people will hold together the same goal of the greatest good with justice as equity. And that leads them to have some correction factors or other counterweights, right? That would work against the perpetuation of inequity that's coming from the consequentialist framework. So that's maybe using SOFA or maybe not. And then compensating with looking at area deprivation index, social vulnerability index, and using those scores to adjust the points that are used in the prioritization, right? Because it's not just the SOFA score, but SOFA gives you points that are used in a broader scheme that prioritizes patients one way or another, right? And there are other suggestions around allocating to essential workers, allocating based on geographic region where you would, where you would center the geographic regions that face the most healthcare inequity, uh, and face the most severe impact of COVID-19, whether it's severe illness or other impacts. Some of the things that we've been talking about as a group in our work is that is how that's only one step. And it's a, it's a step in the process. But really what we need to be able to do is be accountable to marginalized and oppressed communities as healthcare institutions and as systems and take responsibility for the racism. If you look at some of the ways that people have tried to incorporate some of the thought processes around um, putting in structures to mitigate the inequities, that that's actually been some really fascinating work that um, right now, right, there's no real data because we've never been able to use it. Uh, so there's no way of saying that, yes, this is the best way to do it. But there is enough conversation around either providing a counterbalance point system or using an area of deprivation index or using community need scores or any of those other elements to be able to be a proxy for race. Because I think that's what people are, are looking for is a is a mechanism to be a, a strong enough proxy for race that it can be implemented and hold up um, currently with worries in, about whether or not the legality of using race um, is okay, which I have argued it, it, that is the point of why we have constitutional lawyers. I think we need to say race when race is the factor. And if somebody is saying that that's 
unconstitutional, then that's the job of a constitutional lawyer to decide. But the ethically appropriate course of action is to name race and to use it uh, deliberately and intentionally because that's what we're battling against. But if places are still not yet courageous enough to go to that extreme, then they can use other proxies um, for race and attempt to do some corrective action for these guidelines. And maybe uh, at least those kinds of beginning steps will start to develop new bodies of work. So when the next pandemic comes around, it will be automatically included instead of what we're trying to do now, which is sort of play catch up and, and, and make it clear that being equitable and focusing on on the inequities and trying to mitigate that is not just a nice thing to do when the chaos is died down. Like this is what we have to do all day, every day. And it's not something to shelve for the future. While we're in it, we need to address it. Naka, could you talk a little bit more about why race needs to be explicitly addressed in these contexts? Yeah, sure. Uh, I am a firm believer of saying what you mean <laughs> and uh, and not dancing around issues. I think that we have we have had a, a history of making it seem like naming race or the, the races of people is a bad thing. And I don't think it's bad. I have no problems being called a Black person. I'm very proud of my Blackness and and I have no issues with it. So when someone tries to act or behave as if naming me as Black is somehow negative, that that doesn't work for me. So saying that we need to do things to deliberately address the Black community or the Indigenous community or the Native community or whoever the community is, when we're strong enough to say that and accept that, then I think we're actually in the point of actually trying to do some work. If we dance around it and say things like communities in need or socially economically disadvantaged populations, or any of these other nice things to say, but are trying to be proxies for race, I think we're not really about the business because being about the business means that we name the problem and we have no concerns with being intentional and saying we are trying to help Black people. We are trying to help Indigenous people. And using other terminology is a it's just, it's just a, another way of making uh, white people feel a little bit more comfortable in doing this work. And I think that we've got to get past some of that white fragility to use Robin DiAngelo's terms and, and truly just embrace that this is going to be uncomfortable work. And, you know, as the saying goes, just get comfortable with being uncomfortable until we get to the other side. What are some of the theories that we can rely on in times of scarcity that do not have the same weaknesses as consequentialism? I think that what we've been finding in our many conversations over the last several months is that it's not really safe to rely on any theory uh, and that we there are things we can learn. There are definitely uh, non-standard approaches in ethics. Uh, we can learn from feminist theory. We can learn from indigenous ethics and black bioethics and critical race theory. And these are absolutely theories we should bring to the service and interrogate. Uh, however, I think one of my biggest worries is that we will find that people in positions of power in ethics who are predominantly white men will feel like they can interrogate those theories on their own. 
and determine what they will tell us to do in a particular situation and that th and that they'll be used in ways that still perpetuate white supremacy. And so I think that what we're moving towards is is maybe we'll bring in theories, maybe we won't, but committing to equity and committing to anti-racism. And what that means is now and in the long-term forming partnerships where we'll be accountable to folks who are most oppressed and marginalized in our society, working on allyship and reciprocity and allyship and uh, and then also making sure to create spaces and time for folks in healthcare who can, and maybe also in public health, where people can do this justice work, where they can form those partnerships and hold those partnerships over time. It truly is a cultural shift. Um, and that's where I think we need to get to is realizing that it's not just a matter of reading the right books or finding, you know, the right theoretical perspective that fits maybe the decision you're trying to work on now, but it really is a shift at the core of our being and a re-education of the miseducation. And so I, I think that we're going to have to realize that this is not going to be an overnight thing. Uh, it is in for the long haul, but I do have to say that I am, I am more hopeful than before. Uh, I feel like the movement is gaining steam and um, that just makes me more hopeful that we will get out of trying to find a European-based philosophy to, um, to use as our foundation and start truly figuring out how to change behaviors and change our culture. The little I would add is and, and folks have already said it, it is a, a fundamental paradigm shift of consciousness in this country, uh, which is a heavy lift. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It may not even happen in our lifetime. We hope it happens. Uh, we do this work with the hope that it happens. Uh, but the difficulty is deep down inside, you're also terrified that it may not ever happen. Um, and so you live in that contradiction of anxiety and willing yourself to do this work, knowing that it, the hope will will give you enough energy to keep doing it, and and we're not just we're not just reliant on changing hearts and minds. We're relying on changing systems and policies. That's going to take some recalibration of of what input we're putting into these calculations into these analyses into the way we even look at our patients so that we have a different output um and so we're in i think we're people are are seeing it we're in that education phase but then it's going to be the what does it look like for for folks to actually embrace it and practice and at its core, it's relatively simple. Treat treat folks that don't look like us like you would treat your children. Um, and that seems to be a hard concept for a lot of people. Uh, Jane Elliott at a conference asked a crowd full of white folks, 
do you have children? And most of them said, yeah, and raised her hand. And she said, how many of you would trade your child's place with a black child in this country? And no one raised their hand. And she said, you know what that tells me? Is that you are fully aware that growing up in this country as a young black child is terrifying, that you wouldn't even allow your own child to go through it, yet you're not willing to do anything about it. So how do we get, I think it was, um, it was a song I was listening to recently, Stevie Wonder, who said, you're upset that we're protesting, but clearly you're not upset enough to make change. And I think that's where we are. It's, we may seem like agitators, we may seem like provocateurs, but we're not the ones folks should be angry at. It should be at the system that is so inequitable that it's requiring people to call it out and say it has to be different. Appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflections. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. Yeah.